As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm John McKenzie and I'm joined as I always am by my good pal and producer Mike Zimmerman. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, John. Getting into some Calcio today. Yeah, Calcio. Everyone loves Calcio and who better to talk to about Calcio than James Horncastle. I had a fantastic hour chatting to him and you listened to that conversation. So what did you make of it? Now, we're, we're so used to leagues being so top heavy. You look at Bayern, Manchester City and PSG dominating domestically, the Spanish duopoly of Real Madrid and Barcelona. But in Serie A, we've been lucky to see four different Scudetto winners in the past four seasons. And that keeps things fresh from a neutral's perspective. Uh, and, And I honestly, I love the way James described why there's so much parody in Italy. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I think I've very much enjoyed the title race in Serie A over the last few seasons off the back of that. Because as you say, the expectation is now in modern football that you get these dynasties of teams who just win everything. So again, we're going into a Serie A season where we actually don't really know who's going to win. And so hopefully that uh, that parity will be there through the whole season. And so the best thing I think for us to do now is to just jump in and hear James Horncastle telling us all about the majority of teams that are going to be in that title race. Lots to get through, but lots of really interesting insight from James. So this is James Horncastle and the Serie A title race. One of the big questions that has been levelled at European football in the era of big capital has been the question of competitiveness because slowly but surely it feels as though most of the big five leagues have become less competitive as more money has gone into the game. But in recent years, Italy has booked the trend with four winners taking the Scudetta home in the last four seasons. Unfortunately, I'm joined by the person who could probably shed the most light onto this phenomenon because I'm joined by the Athletics Serie A correspondent, James Horncastle. James, thank you so much for coming on today. Pleasure, John. Yeah, we've got absolutely loads to get through today because we're going to talk about the Serie A title race and some of the bigger themes around it as well. So we'll begin by looking at those bigger themes, uh, talk about why it is that Italy's title race has been more open in recent years, and then we'll have a look at some of the teams involved in that race this season to see who is where. So let's start off with uh, the first question, a big general question. So Serie A has had the most diverse group of title winners across the last few seasons. Why do you think that is? (laughs) I think there are two reasons. Uh, One is Cristiano Ronaldo but not for what you expect. And the second is COVID. And I think they're kind of linked. One is that 
Juventus signed Cristiano in order to nudge them over the line. Remember in 2015 and 2017, they'd reached Champions League finals. And this kind of creates this hubristic moment for Juventus where, right, let's go and get the guy who wins Champions League finals. They overpaid for him. Yeah, you can talk about the fee, but particularly the wages, huge burden on the club. And all of a sudden, what was a very solid and stable management structure comes under a lot of pressure. COVID kind of compounds that even more. And the Juventus team that wins nine league titles in a row kind of disintegrates, really. And the team that then kind of knocked them off their perch, if you like, is Inter. But that only lasts for one year because Serie A gets hit by COVID. It's the kind of first European country to really be hit by it and have a lockdown. But Inter's owners, Suning, are kind of at the epicenter of where COVID broke out in China. And, you know, when you have a lot of retail businesses uh, which rely on people going into shops and buying stuff and they have to close, it has quite a big impact on your uh, business, which when you've already taken a load of debt out to fund that business, it's not good. And so, yeah, that kind of hobbled, I suppose, um, the two powers uh, in the league and it's created this kind of volatility. And you know, I think when AC Milan became champions, that was ahead of schedule for their ownership group. They were still in the process of you know, turning a loss-making, underperforming, uh, club into a, a better run, more sustainable one with data and all this kind of stuff. And they managed to exploit that. And then, yeah, Napoli really came up, came out of nowhere. Uh, again, I would be low to say it was a low-cost operation because ultimately Victor Osman, everyone forgets, cost them 75 million. But I think the volatility really has come up come about by seeing what happened with Cristiano Ronaldo and COVID at Juventus. <laughs> and there's clearly a financial aspect here that you're talking about um, and the way that that has um, uh, manifested itself has been in Serie A clubs, even at the very highest level, being unable to compete with teams, for example, in the Premier League at the, at the bottom of that league. Yeah. Um, there's, there's an extent, though, to which the, 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 the collapse of, of the bigger players in Serie A has made the, the, the league better, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I suppose it's this inability to retain top talent. Maybe that is another factor in the volatility that we see. Um, so, you know, I, I think Juventus got progressively worse every year that Cristiano Ronaldo was there. Um, and just keeping him meant that they had to sell players that I think made them a good team. Um, and then you look at Inter, for example, yeah, not being able to hold on to Lukaku, Hakimi, you know, every year Inter have lost uh, key players to the point that it's it's a minor miracle that Lautaro Martinez is kind of the last man standing. I know there are some of the Italians still there, the likes of Bastoni, Barella, because those guys will never move and the fans would never accept them moving. Um, but, uh, yeah, that has made it actually a really difficult job for whoever has replaced, you know, Juventus, say Maurizio Sarri, who was the last league title winner. And 
yeah, Simone Inzaghi, when he finishes a season, he never knows what team he's going to start with. Um, so, so that's kind of kind of kept things interesting. Um, I, I suppose it, it might have had an influence on on Napoli winning the league. Um, in that Napoli are one of the few teams that have been able to hold on and retain players because they're a team that doesn't have much debt and are self-funded really uh, you know, to the point that even during their title winning season the fans were protesting there's this notion that Aurelio De Laurentiis doesn't really put his hand in his pocket enough and that they only buy players with what they recoup from sales but because he sets such high prices for his players often those players end up staying far longer than you would expect um, so you know not even to get into last season's team but if you look at the players they sold a year ago you know Koulibaly who I think was kind of a record sale for a centre-back in his 30s but there was a time the summer before the summer before that when you felt Koulibaly would go for like 70 million or something like that and they held on to him likewise with Mertens and Insigne in the end they were let go when their contracts run out so Napoli were able to have a degree of continuity and mid-volatility, which I think served them pretty well uh, when it came to, to last season. I mean, I don't expect you to be an economics expert, but how do you anticipate this sort of works its way out? Because you mentioned COVID sort of exacerbating everything that was going on financially. We're, we're getting to the point now where COVID is sort of out of the, out of the wash now. Um, do you think that it will will just reach a point again where Juventus are able to uh, assert themselves as the as the big player? I think it's quite interesting comparing where Juventus are now with, let's say, the period between 2006-2012. 2006 is Catropoli scandal. They get relegated. They come back up. They actually do better than expected in their first season back. They get to Champions League and then they think, actually, you know what, we can push and win the league again. So they ended up putting all their eggs in the Diego Ribas basket uh, from Werder Bremen. And that meant that they changed from playing 4-4-2 to trying to play with a diamond in midfield, which at that time was anathema. Juventus do not do that. They were a team that had wingers, you know, Nedved, Camoranesi and that sort of thing. And that Diego decision set them back like another two or three years. And yeah, it led to the fall of the then president. I know everyone thinks that Andrea Agnelli and the Agnelli family have been president or whatever, chairman since the, the well, a hundred years ago. But at that time it was a guy called Giovanni Cobolli-Gilli uh, and Jean Coblanc who went on to PSG. And that structure, it just didn't work. And even in Agnelli's first year as president, they, they didn't improve on the year before, seventh. So I, I don't, I'm not sure that Juventus immediately bounced back. Um, I think, yeah, that is quite an instructive period um, to, to look at. Um, you know, along with, you know, I remember uh, beginning of the 90s, they brought back Giovanni Trapattoni and you could see them, you know, they brought back Allegri and it, it's not as fresh as it was in 2014 uh, when he first came. So I think that structure will take some time to to be ironed out. Uh, and then likewise with Inter, you know, I think Inter 
you know, I, I, I've got a lot of praise for the job Inzaghi's doing because it is a movable feast all of the time. Um, but, you know, the, the loan that they were given to prop them up by a Californian hedge fund, that's due in, in May. And, you know, if, if Inter's owners, Suning, don't pay that, then that hedge fund will repossess the club a little bit like Elliot did with AC Milan. And so I think those two big clubs are still still caught in some of the strife that they found themselves in from COVID. And then you've got these more mobile clubs like Milan, for example. I think that's where there's a big opportunity because those clubs that have stability um, and a very clear idea of who they are, which has been built on year after year for the last five years, let's say, they should be in a really good position to, if not win the league two or three years in a row, then win it three times out of five years. So, but I mean, again, a more general point is the the current TV rights tender is up um, for for the next five year cycle, and you know I think just they're running to stand still at the moment. They would, yeah, they took a big contraction with the last rights cycle. They want to avoid another contraction, but. It, it's it's rather than bridging the gap with the Premier League. It's very much trying to like st- just stay where they are now. And if if they get less money, then again become harder to retain players with Premier League competition, Saudi competition, and uh, and so as bad as that sounds, that might again continue this spin cycle of volatility. You don't know. You don't think the competitiveness is going to bump up the the TV revenue package? Uh, I think. The, the problem that Syria has is that they're going into a right cycle tender at the time that uh, UEFA um, is selling a bigger Champions League. Mm. And, uh, and because I, I think they're like 30% more games in the Champions League from next season, it means that UEFA can command more money in the market. So, for example, you have, a, you have Sky Italia who have already kind of seeded uh, the majority of Serie A coverage to DAZN saying actually you know we're happy with re-upping the, the Champions League and so what would ordinarily go in their budget to be spent on Serie A is being spent on the Champions League and and so so that's an issue um, sort of uh, avoiding another bit of stagnation where there's potential for growth for Serie A really is, is international uh, media rights which is why some US investors have got into the league. They think that they've been underperforming there for a while. But you know, what, if whatever uh, money you bring in on the up in international is counted by kind of falling in, in the domestic, you're just kind of either stuck where you were or, or it gets worse. Hmm. Just one more question before we start getting into the teams, but last season, the Italian teams did really well in European competition, went quite deep. <laughs> do you consider that just to be a sort of a fl- fluke of variance or do you think that there's there's some correlation between having a competitive league and being able to go deeper in competitions? So, I mean, it's, it's a really nice follow-up question to, to your last one because <laughs> I remember it must have been like March, April time last year, uh, this year, um, Serie on the back of you know, teams getting into the latter stages of the Champions League put out this promotional campaign which would trail all of the games uh, in Serie uh, internationally which was Calcio is back 
Um, and and it was it was there, I think, to convince broadcasters that are bidding for rights at the moment. Oh, yeah, Serie A is back. <laughs> um, and I think it is a fluke of variance um, because a lot of weird stuff happened in Serie A last year. You know, it, it was clear, if not going into the World Cup break, then certainly by the end of January that Napoli were miles out in front. And I think all of the teams behind them were quite calculated in saying the league's gone. So let's focus on other things. Now, ordinarily, that would be kind of quite a competitive top four race. But Juventus's points deduction also at the end of January, I think, made the likes of Milan, the likes of Inter, less so Roma, but particularly those two big sides say, uh, you know what? We can rest easy a little bit in City A. We think top four is going to be quite easy and concentrate on the Champions League. Um, and then they all panicked when Juventus got their points back momentarily. <laughs> um, but I think those two factors, Napoli being far out in front very early on and the Juventus points penalty situation created a dynamic within the league where teams could actually focus on cup competitions with greater tranquility than maybe they had done in other, in other seasons. So I'm not expecting a repeat this season. I think it was Maurizio Sarri who came out and said the same thing right at the end of last season too but let's move on to talk about a club that Sarri has coached but isn't coaching right now and that's Napoli so they were last season's winners and as you said won it at a canter yeah um, curiously there's been quite a bit of overhaul at the club since they won the Scudetto which doesn't make a huge amount of sense because usually you'd think that would set them on a, a nice trajectory to sort of be the, the team to beat going forwards but they lost their manager Luciano Spalletti um, what happened there why, why did that end up falling to pieces in many respects look it's it's a tough job being coach of Napoli um, and it can be quite wearing because it's uh, it's a one club town um, in the south and where you know all eyes are on you and you know I remember you know pre-season in 2022 he was being heckled on stage uh, because he was being seen as you know sort of a yes man for the club who was um rolling over when the club was letting Koulibaly, Mertens and Insigne go. He had his Fiat Panda stolen and was told he'd only get it back if he resigned. Um, and De Laurentiis is, is, is not easy to, to work with either. Um, you know, Napoli are, are big on doing crazy detailed contracts. Um, you know, I think there was one player, Fauzi Goulam, said that yeah, in terms of like player image rights, you know, they retain your rights even on the moon. <laughs> That's in the contract. And so uh, towards the end of last season, uh, Spalletti's contract was unilaterally extended um, because Napoli had the option and he wasn't consulted on it. And so there, there are a few things like, you know, he wanted a break. Um, he's got a young daughter, even though his, his, his boys are kind of grown up. Uh, but he's got a young daughter wanting to spend more time with her. And so, you know, was able eventually to persuade uh, De Laurentiis to, to let him serve out the final year of his contract on his farm in, in Tuscany. But that was a very short-lived sabbatical. <laughs> he's now in charge of Italy. Mm. So the thing with Napoli, as you've already mentioned, is that they do have the ability to have continuity with their squad. Yeah. Um, and largely they've kept their squad the same this season, which is important when you have players at the, at the level of Osserman and Kvaritskelia. How have Napoli looked so far compared to last season? They're under the, the, the tutelage of Rudy Garcia now. 
Has there been a big change? I mean, they still play 4 3 3. Um, but I think, and I don't want to draw conclusions that are premature, I think they've looked a bit ropey. I think the narrative over up until the Lazio defeat was Napoli are as good as ever. Um, Garcia's picked off, picked up where Spalletti left off. I think watching the, watching the games, particularly even the, the early Frosinone game, um, one of the great strengths of Napoli last year, and it's something that Spalletti made the kind of iconic moment of his team, was they played Sassuolo in Reggio Emilia. They had a corner. Um, Sassuolo counted from it and all of a sudden you just saw all 10 outfield Napoli players chasing back Ozzyman almost like at the front sprinting to win the ball back and I haven't seen that collective um, intent really in the in the defensive phase from them this season it might be because it's still August it's super hot and yeah they're, they're only just coming back and the yeah, some of the mechanisms that they had are taking time, some of the new things that Garcia wants are taking time. But watching that, I'm kind of like, okay, that's that's different. Um and then and then the other thing is uh some of their tendencies are different as well. I, yeah, they they used to be quite unashamed about being direct and just chucking it in the channel for Aussie men to go one v one. And particularly in that defeat to Lazio, they weren't doing that at all for like an hour and then it's almost like they suddenly remembered it. Um, and then there there are a couple of things where the the team, you know, obviously they, they didn't lose Cavadatskelia, although Cavadatskelia missed the start of the season with, with injury and Garcia was playing Raspadori there. Um, and they kept Aussie men. The only player they lost was Kim, uh, and Kim was the defender of the year and they replaced him with a guy called Natan from uh, Red Bull Bragantino in Brazil someone who's yeah, never played in Europe before still quite young doesn't know the language and Gussie is yet to play him and I think if you told any Napoli fan that they were going to go into the season with Juan Jesus playing as a centre-back alongside Rachmani they would have been like that's okay for a few games but if that's going to be long term then that's a problem and you just see some, for now, you kind of see some of the things that Kim used to bring to the team are not there. So just like being comfortable, stepping out with the ball in possession, um, just being very proactive defensively in terms of closing down spaces, which uh, very quickly, which, um, which kind of lead the opponents to make different decisions. I think that's, it feels like it's only one player, but I think it's a pretty crucial player and not necessarily just in people think oh someone who can keep Napoli keeping clean sheets someone who actually is I think really important to their how they win the ball back and discourage opponents from doing doing things and how they impose themselves in games so I think a lot of people going into this weekend are very curious to see if if Natan starts if that's been what Garcia has been working on in mm. in this first international break what do you think the na narrative will be if Napoli don't really mount a title challenge this time around? Do you think there will be a, a, a lot of constant... I mean, obviously, amongst the fan base, there will be, but around Italy in general, will that like, be considered to be a bit of a dropping of the ball? I mean, historically, Napoli have never retained the title, so it would just feel like it's you know part of, uh, part of their history, really. We've spent the first 
10 minutes of the show talking about the volatility within the league so th there's there's almost kind of less expectation that uh, a team will retain their title I think it, it depends really I mean I think AC Milan a good case study um, last season in that they finished what maybe 20 points off uh, Napoli which as, a, as title defences go is pretty terrible but they reached the Champions League semi-final and that kind of saved perspectives on the season I suppose reflections on it and you know I think you asked me about Spalletti and how his relationship with Napoli finished. Like De Laurentiis was not shy in coming forward with how disappointed he was that they went out in the quarterfinals of the Champions League um, to what he felt was a beatable AC Milan. Um, and he, he kept banging on about that. I think that wasn't particularly great for Spalletti as Spalletti was leading them to their first league title in 33 years. So I wonder how much these this group of players thinks actually you know what we won the league now let's let's focus on the Champions League because I think they th within themselves they felt they had they had a chance if not to win it than to reach the final last year and they didn't do that so um, so I think there's uh, that will colour their season and the other thing is like it, you know it, if they are I don't know fourth or, or fifth in I don't know November December going into the spring, I'm pretty pretty sure we'll already hear <laughs> some noises <laughs> from De Laurentiis because De Laurentiis, you know, I mean, if Napoli, you know, Spalletti was there for two seasons. Um, you know, before that, Cattuso was there for eighteen months. Um, Ancelotti, you know, the guy who's this avuncular guy who all his players love. He got fired after a player mutiny in Naples. <laughs> And uh, and you know so the last guy to last three years there was was Sarri, so they've actually had quite as much as we talk about them, their ability to retain players, they've actually quite had a lot of churn when it comes to to, to the manager. So that shows that I think De Laurentiis is quite a fiery character, and so if 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 things don't go to expectation, um, which you know he I expects not only to retain the title but you know to 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 go further in the Champions League, then yeah, I'd probably we will probably be hearing some murmurings um, in the spring. So you'd be surprised if Napoli are top of the the league by the end. Yeah, of Yeah, because I think I think Inter are the Inter. I think you mentioned earlier have been underperforming the last couple of years, uh, at least in terms of their Serie A form. And you know, I think even how they finished the last third of last season, and you could say that Napoli came under some pressure which was pressure they put on themselves because they wanted to win the league uh, as early as possible and it made them nervous, anxious and they would draw games they should have won and lose games they, they should have drawn. Um, but Inter's form in the final third of last season, not just in the Champions League, was by far the best in Italy. You know, I, I think even if you look like, I think even if you look at the numbers of how the season finished, top for XG, they were they were monsters at the end of the season Inter um, and yeah if they hadn't lost 12 games <laughs> then, then yeah I'm sure they, they, they would have won won the league you know mm. if my grandmother had wheels and all that sort of <laughs> stuff but at the same time like Inter played I would say from from April onwards and the season did finish in June so we're talking two and a half months really 
interplay as well as in as Napoli did at their peak, in my opinion. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. So Napoli won the league last season, but it was a bit of a surprise team. It came second place because uh, Lazio really crept up on us, I think, when they when they um, finished in that in that position. This is now Maurizio Sarri's third season with the club, and um, with him finishing second and having had time and players to build the team in his own image, there must be a fair amount of expectation for him to do quite well this season. Yeah, because you know we 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 talked about the volatility four different champions in four years so there is like a who's going to be the fifth one and uh, it's kind of like spin the bottle and it's pointing at <laughs> Lazio which I, I think still people look at that and are incredulous at it they just they don't believe Lazio can do it i mean they came really close to winning the league under Simone Inzaghi um in covid and if you know perhaps if the if if lockdown hadn't happened that team had the momentum um, to win the title that turned out to be Juventus's last title, I think, or was that Inter's f- first title in a while? But anyway, they they were really good, and people f- have conveniently forgotten about that. Um, 
but there's been there's been quite a lot of change, I suppose, um, in that a little bit like a little bit like Napoli. They're kind of s- subtle changes, which I actually think mean a lot. So, you know, Napoli lost their sporting director as well as their coach. So Cristiano Giuntoli went to Juventus. Lazio have a sporting director called Iglitare, who used to play for for Brescia, and he got binned off um, this summer. So it just meant the owner, Claudio Latito, did all the business. And Claudio Latito is a senator uh, in the Italian parliament, um, sits on the Italian Fo- Football Federation's sort of board and Serie A's board, which means he's effectively the most powerful man um, in, in Italian football. And... Um, and has a lot on his plate. So Sarri was Sarri's very particular about the players that he wants. And so he wanted Fred from Man United, uh, as did Dzerbi at uh, Brighton um, when they lost Caicedo. And uh, he wanted Samuele Ricci as well. And basically, uh, Sarri was so clear about that, that the prices of those players was very high. And so Sarri bought him other players. So, so, so Sarri's been sort of complaining about the delay in these players joining. Um, Kamada, for example, is has come in to replace Sergei Milinkovic-Savic. And Milinkovic-Savic, again, is, there are some parallels between Napoli and Lazio in that Lotito is so hard to deal with that they hang on to their players for much longer than you would expect. Mm. And so, um, and so Milinkovic, for example, remember going into the 2018 World Cup, he was... Because Man- Juventus had sold Pogba for 105 million, Latita was like, Linkovic is a 100 million euro player as well. And in the end, it takes Saudi Arabia paying, I can't remember, maybe 40 million, 45 million for him as he goes into the final year of his contract. And he's just such a unique player in that, you know, he was kind of thought of as a Ibrahimovic of midfield players for a time just because of his size and the fact he's got itch on the end of his surname. <laughs> Um, twice, twice. <laughs> um, but if they wanted to beat a press, they could just go along to him. And uh, and the other thing is, he he was great in the air in the opposition penalty area as well, um, and would bring lots of goals. You know, two times Serie A midfielder of the year. Kamada is completely different. And you know, Kamada thought he was going to AC Milan, um, but would have taken up one of their non-EU slots. So they're like, yeah, hang on a minute. Uh, we'll hang around and and see what we're doing. Oh, we've actually changed our mind. We're doing something different. And so Kamada was essentially like Tom Hanks in the terminal, just like waiting. Um, and and that meant he missed a lot of preseason. And so yeah, he got his first goal uh, for Lazio in the win against Napoli. Um, but you can see that there. And I think this is actually quite an interesting thing about Sarri at Lazio as well, is that when Sarri was at Napoli and at Chelsea, the expectation was high press, high possession, all these kind of things. And at Lazio, he's basically had to adjust and say like, you know what, actually we're a really good transition team. So that means we're going to sit back a little bit deeper and try and and have these build-up schemes which allow us to release someone like Immobile in space or Felipe Anderson in space. Um, so, uh, so yeah, it's, so he'll have to, he's going to have to adjust around Kamada. Um, and, uh, but yeah, again, it's just a kind of rigorously 4-3-3 three, three 
kind of uh, set up from from Sarri. Do you think that we're seeing a bit of a transition in style this season? Is that part of the reason why Lazio haven't started out particularly well this season? Um, I think <laughs> I think because they've uh, they've signed quite a lot of players. Um, so, for example, like last year, if Immobile was injured, and he had a really injury hit season last year, Immobile. Um, his Range Rover got hit by a tram as well, uh, which was could have, could, could have been really nasty. Um, they used to play like Felipe Anderson as the false nine instead. Now they've got Castellanos, who played for Girona, comes from New York City. And Sarri like, has tried to play sometimes with, uh, with two up front, and he's not convinced by it. So he's, you can tell he's sort of, he's experimenting a bit on the job I think in like Lecce, the first game of the season, take the lead first half, they're on top and they did what they did last year in Lecce, which was get too comfortable, concede an equaliser and a second goal in a short space of time. And for Sarri, it's a mentality issue. Against Genoa, they were totally unlucky. You know, it's one of those where Genoa score with their only shot on target, their only shot of the game, and Lazio dominate but can't convert the chances. And um, and so, you know, on the one hand, it was disappointing, but I think on watching particularly the Genoa game, it's not a game that they deserve to lose or, or even draw. You know, they should have won that game. So, um, so I think their place in the league table maybe doesn't really reflect... Um, their performances so far. Hmm. And so, with that in mind, how do you anticipate their their potential title challenge to go? Do you think that they'll be there and thereabouts, or is it more about getting top four finish for them? I think if they were to get top four again, um, yeah, that would be uh, that would be a big yeah, sort of feather in in Sarri's cap all over again. I think one of the criticism of, of him is that you know, like in the Coppa Italia last season, just just not good enough. Um, he always whines about how much football is being played when you're at the top of the game. <laughs> like he, he, he said that he feel he feels more like a film producer than a coach because the only stuff he can do these days is cut up film to show the players. Because if they're playing every three days, they need rest and recovery, so they're not on the training pitch. So he, he hates playing Serie A, Coppa Italia, Europe. Um, which you know, sort of Allegri and Mourinho always like make digs about uh, with him. Um, so I think their Champions League group is probably quite winnable. Um, it seems really balanced. Um, I think it's actually quite hard to call who comes out of that group. Um, and I think it will be a case of of how they deal with that, um, how they deal with playing Champions League in conjunction with Serie A between September and December, really. I think it will probably be quite draining um, for for them, even though the squad seems deeper than it did last year. So it's actually it's actually really as unpredictable as the league has become over the last four years. What you can kind of predict is that is the top seven teams, um, and and that makes it a difficult to predict a winner, and it's difficult to predict who finishes fifth, um, just because. Yeah, the, there are so many teams that are pretty evenly matched. So 
I'd be very surprised, A, on the showing at the beginning of the season, but B, longer term, if Lazio can be like the fifth champion in five years. I'd be very, very surprised at that. Um, and, and yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if they're sort of trying to stay fourth, really. Um, I don't think that's regression. I just think it's, it's going to be a more challenging season for them. Mm. So we've talked about two teams who've relatively been able to keep their players. That brings us to Inter, who, who <laughs> haven't managed to do that so well this this season. But um, I think the, the the personnel turnover that they've had has impacted them, particularly in their build-up uh, units as well. So they've lost Andre Onana, one of the best ball-playing goalkeepers in the world. Uh, he's gone to Manchester United, and then Marcelo Brozovic head, headed off to Saudi Arabia. Um, I don't think any of us expected Hakan Chalanolu to become a sort of reinvented six later in his career but um, I think the, the the upside of all this is that Inter's been build up is looking very different to the way it's done for a long time now so do you think this is a good thing or a, or a bad thing? Well I mean they've started the season really well mm. and you know rather than any kind of tactical adjustment or build up adjustment it feels like with Inter it's one of those cases of team loses the Champions League final which they actually came out of it thinking we might have won that and mentally whatever City are game they go into they feel superior and they make that superiority felt uh, there's a real aura about Inter and so they haven't conceded yet this season okay they've not really played anyone any good um, but you know even in those games Jan Sommer's only I think had one tricky save to make but you're right in terms of how fluid Inter were, particularly in the, in the final couple of months last year. You know, a lot of that came from you know brave choices that uh, Inzaghi made. You know, I mean, last season they started with Onana uh, only being the Champions League goalkeeper, and Inzaghi stayed true to Handanovic, and then he was like, you know what, actually no, I'm just going to make Onana our goalkeeper. And he is a transformational player. Um, you know, even, you know, I think in how competitive the Champions League final ended up being, a lot of that was down to him and some of like Inzaghi's scheme um, as well. But. Uh, Which is crazy, right? For a goalkeeper to be that influential on the wider tactics of a game is, yeah. is mad. And, you know, I mean, it, it allowed them in that game to be really aggressive in in their sort of press as well with sort of. Uh, Bastoni coming really high up the pitch on John Stones and Damian really high up the pitch on on, on Kevin De Bruyne. Um, so that's that is different um, this this year. But the the midfield, I think, with Napoli's is and, and you know obviously Milan's midfield has started the season really well and looks infinitely better on last season. But Inter's midfield is probably with Napoli's the best in the league. Um, and you know, again, that's a midfield that has had, you know, quite a lot of change. Um, you mentioned Chalinolu being reinvented as a six. I mean, he got a kind of a lot of reps doing that last year because Brozovic, like Lukaku, was out injured for like six months. Um, and then they've got Mikitayan, uh, one of their many free transfers, because you know, Inter for the most part have to do free transfers because of the financial situation of the club and if you think you're like Chala and Mkhitaryan uh, they're actually players who played as tens for a long part of their career or they're players who are comfortable in the, in in between the lines in the final third 
Um, and then when you think that Barella is a player who likes to bomb on and get in the box, you've got three you've got three players who are who I think feel most comfortable uh, higher up the pitch. And uh, you know, as once everything started clicking for them, that was really good last season. But when it didn't, um, I think they they were one of the teams that conceded the most chances from transitions and counterattacks. And it probably isn't a surprise when you've got two tens in midfield and a guy like Borella. Um But they're they're really really good to watch, and uh, I think Inter as well. Last year, people looked at Ivan Perisic going to Spurs, and Perisic in his the second half of his last season at Inter was their best player. And it was like, well, how are they going to solve that? Okay, they've signed Robin Gosens from Atalanta, and Gosens was like the highest scoring defender, if you want to class him as that, in Europe's top five leagues in the last couple of years prior to his move. And it just never worked for Gosens. He was he signed off an injury, and and Inzaghi basically has developed Federico Di Marco. Di Marco has become one of the best wing backs uh, not only in Italy but I think in in Europe um, at the moment um, so I think Inzaghi deserves a, a lot of credit I mean I think tactically probably people don't think he's that interesting but like when you look at the amount of churn that he has to deal with and you know like even for example Skriniar second half of last season it becomes clear he's going to PSG okay right you know what he's injured but we're not going to play him anymore we need to move on and plays Damian as a right centre-back and Damian was really good for them and so it's all stuff that makes you think Inzaghi's actually a pretty damn good coach hmm. Now I've obviously timed this podcast recording very badly because it's the uh, Milan derby this weekend <laughs> which is going to be just before this episode drops and I guess that game will probably found the narratives for the next few months right so uh, how do you expect that game to go and, and what do you anticipate to be the, the narratives going forward off the back Ooh. of it. I mean, I'm I'm really excited for this game and curious about it because uh, apart from the first game last season, um, Inter absolutely floored Milan whenever they came up against them. I was just a no contest. They made Milan look like a Cremonese or something like that. Um, and uh, those games were just so one-sided. So I'm interested to see if the kind of corrections uh, Milan have made in the summer transfer window make them more competitive in this game um, because because I do think Inter are the team to beat this year um, and um, and yeah so I think it, it'll be really interesting to see that midfield bat bat uh, battle because I think as good as Inter's midfield is when it clicks um, and it's probably more fluid than any other. This Milan midfield now feels like it's got more balance to it than it did last year. They're obviously playing more with three in midfield than kind of two as they did last year. I think they've got players who can help them get over whenever Benacer is out injured. Benacer is currently out injured. They were, I think they were less able to cope without him last year. Um, and so I think that midfield battle... Um, is really interesting. Uh, I think you know wide areas has been a has uh, wide areas set plays has been a 
it's been a problem because Inter, um, you know, sort of, they're not the best from set plays in in, in Serie A, but uh, there was a, there was a feeling that they had you know more physicality, I would say, than than Inter in those situations. Whether that changes now that Jeko's gone um, and Lukaku's gone, uh, I don't know. But one of the things I thought was quite interesting in Chiram's game in the last game going into the international break was they're not afraid to use Chiram's height. Um, yeah, they were putting a lot of crosses in the box for him. Um, and yeah, particularly on that side where you've got Teo and, and Teo's you know, brilliant going forward. But we've seen Milan derbies in the last couple of years where they've really tried to isolate him in the air with Denzel Dumfries. And if you've got Dumfries and Chiram in that area, um, it's 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 quite difficult. Um, so with Tomori being out injured uh, as well, you know it'll be it'll be it'll be, that'll be a, yeah fascinating game to watch. Yeah, which, which brings us quite nicely on to Milan, who have had another. Uh, there've been another team who've had a big rebuild this summer, and that was kicked off by the sale of Sandro Tonali to Newcastle for a fairly chunky fee, which has funded a big influx of players. Uh, so players like Christian Pulisic, Ruben Loftus-Cheek, Yunus Musa, Tiani Reinders as well. Um, in principle, selling a club talisman like Tonali and buying in the aggregate, I suppose, is quite a risky approach. How well do you think that's worked out so far for them? Well, uh, they've got maximum points. <laughs> so it has worked out pretty well. Um, I think most people would say that the midfield looks better now and contributes more in attack um, because I think one of the features of their their first uh, few games has been uh, midfielders making runs into the box, which you know, okay, occasionally you saw it from Tonali. There's some sort of big goals in Verona or against Lazio that come to mind. But it wasn't something that became a pattern of play, I thought, for them when Tonali was there. And instead, you know, the first goal of the season is Pulisic cross to the back post for Renders and Renders cuts it back for a Giroud tap-in. Um, you've got sort of Loftus-Cheek um, in the last game sort of playing a 1-2 with Giroud whose hold-up play has been really good I think so far this this his hold-up and link play this season has been really good and you know it's that drive into the box that brings a penalty so I think you know as much as we at the Athletic have focused a lot on Christian Pulisic <laughs> um, in Captain America I think uh, Pulisic's had moments um, this season rather than what I've seen from I think Reinders and Ruben Loftus-Cheek where you've seen more sustained quality throughout an entire match um, but you know I mean that right hand side for Milan has been a problem position for the last two years and it does feel like they've not just solved it they've kind of double solved it and that they've got Pulisic who can play off Giroud if they need him to can play on the left if Leao is out injured, which last year in the semi-final of the Champions League, they had to play Salamakas there. And, you know, if Pulisic's injured, they've got Chukweze, or maybe Chukweze becomes the established right winger. We haven't really seen all that much uh, from him apart from cameos. Um, Chukweze looks really exciting. Um, and I think, like, if he wasn't in the final year of his contract at Villarreal when they bought him... He's probably like a 
50 million euro player um, if there's Premier League competition for him. So, yeah, I, I, I think the idea was ultimately to help them be better against deep defences and break down those low blocks, have players who are good in 1v1 situations. and uh, But so far, I think it's the midfield and how the midfield follows the attack uh, follows the play forward that is is the major difference with Milan this season yeah and the perennial question has always been how how do Milan get the balance when you know the left hand side as you said you've got Rafa Leao and, and you've got Teo Hernandez and, and that is the, that's the, been the beating heart of Milan for the last couple of seasons in terms of what, when they're generating chances but yeah. if you're so reliant on one side oppositions recognize that very quickly and they can they can find ways of, of, of offsetting that but I think what we're seeing now for Milan is that they do have that balance of being able to attack down both sides now and that's going to make them a much more dangerous prospect yeah and uh, yeah I mean I think Leao statistically had a better season last season than he did when he won the MVP he'll have less distractions as well there's not a World Cup and you know, a lot of people will focus on how Milan spent the Tonali money, but I would say that a trend was inverted in them extending the contract of a star player like Leao because in the past they didn't see fit to do it with Donnarumma. They didn't see fit to do it with Kessie, Chalinolu, um, but they thought Leao was, was worth it. Mm. And I always think of... of contract renewals as new signings that they are effectively that because you know some transfer fees are big but over time the biggest outlay is your the operating cost of a player mm-hmm. and you know I think Leao uh, if Leao doesn't have the World Cup and his contract talks distracting him then you know maybe he has a season where he gets to 20 goals um, this season but but I think the interesting thing is, yes, okay, they're less dependent on him. Um, but like, you know, Giroud has been such a good signing for them. And, you know, he picked up an injury in this international break. I think he's going to be all right for the derby. But you look at some of the business that Milan did and you think, like on the final day, they were scrabbling around for a backup centre forward. You know, they, they thought they were signing to Remy. Um, you know, then his agent changed things and they pulled out of that. And then they're like, oh, who do we go for? Shall we get uh, Patson Dacker? Um, and they end up with Luka Jovic. And it makes you think that if they wanted a backup striker, they thought that position was as important as they clearly do. Did they need to sign Yunus Musa um, when they've got Loftus Cheek and they've got lots of options in midfield? Did they, should they have just signed an out-and-out striker rather than Okafor, for example, rather than someone who can play off the wing or as a kind of hybrid-y striker when you've got Pulisic who can play on the left um, and that sort of thing. So I think that's, that's the only fly in the ointment, if you like, of, of, of Milan's transfer window. I've got a question here which seems potentially not on the face of it but <laughs> I've got it if, if Milan don't challenge for the title this season does that mean it's a make or break season for manager Stefano Pioli um, obviously he's won he's won the Scudetto with them a few seasons ago and um, it seems mad to ask it now but it does feel as though they've spent a lot of money they've they've changed the squad they've they've given them a squad to work with if, if they don't challenge is, is, is it, is it going to be questions about him that are raised? <laughs> so I think everything he's said in this um, 
start of the season has been the, the, the executive team has listened to me. They haven't gone and signed names for the sake of signing names. They've respected what I asked, which is I want players with these skill sets. So uh, the club has, has overhauled the team from the defence up. So midfield, three quarters, striker, it's completely different. So in some respects, there's, there's no excuse really uh, for him. Uh, Milan, without Juventus' points penalty, would not have finished in the top four last year, uh, which they get very lucky in that regard. And, you know, that would have, as much as selling Tenali helped them fund this rebuild of their attack, if they're not in the Champions League, then they're not going to be able to be, not, you know, they're going, two or three of the players that they've signed are not going to be signed. Um, so I think domestically has to improve on uh, on last season. I think it's hard to expect Milan to get into the Champions League semi-finals again, you know, as much as they would like to be there. Um, I think that's why <laughs> there was so much focus when they got to the semi-final or the quarter-finals. Um, when the draw happened and they were on that side of the draw to seize that moment when they could and see if they could reach a final because it might not come around again. And, you know, I think, you know, Paolo Maldini, when he was still the technical director, was saying, look, you know, we if you look at our, our name, then yes, of course you expect AC Milan um, to be in the Champions League semi-finals. But if you look at our squad, we shouldn't be here. Um, and so, you know, I think it's too much to expect them to repeat what they did in Europe last year. But I think if they finish, I don't know, I think if they're, if they're in contention for the title late, then that's fine. Um, but, you know, if, if it's into who win, it's not good. <laughs> Never good. Um, and and yeah, if they're if they're twenty points off the top like they were last year, then then yeah, I think it becomes a serious conversation. We are fifty minutes into a podcast about the Serie A title race, and we have not yet mentioned <laughs> Juventus properly yet. So let's let's turn our attention finally to them. Um, uh, whenever I catch up on what's going on behind the scenes at Juve. I always get the impression that everything is a little bit up in the air in recent years. So where are we at right now in the in the Juventus saga? Well, if you look at their performances on the pitch last year, performances uh, fans did not like. You know, Allegri out was back trending on Twitter. Um, crowds were down. You know, I mean, this was the thing. The Juventus stadium was always sold out. And then all of a sudden... Yeah, you, you're on. You're watching it on TV, and you, you're seeing lots and lots of empty seats. Um, but as bad as the football was, results-wise, I think if 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 they don't have the points deductions, which kind of screwed with the players' heads and made them think, "What's this all for?" They, I think they finished second. In the end, on the pitch, they finished third. Um, but they fell away really when. You know, after being given a 15-point penalty, the points penalty is suspended, and then it's hit with the, hit them again. It just it, it made the end of their season really hard. So, it's a team that's capable of going on runs. You know, even last year they could go on an eight-game winning streak in the league. It's a team that's capable of clean sheets, uh, and lots of them. I think the curious thing is, like, if if we look at you know, Italy's game against uh, North Macedonia, not a single Juventus player in it. That's partly because Chiesa was injured and 
Spalletti made a different choice in midfield rather than playing Locatelli there. But it's 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 a Juventus team with an all Brazilian back line, you know, back three with Alexandro, Bremer, and Danilo, uh, which is unusual. Um, it's a team that because they're not in Europe at all with this one-year UEFA ban. You know, Allegri has said, look, we've got more time on the training pitch. That means maybe we can be a little bit more ambitious in the ideas we try and incorporate. He's brought in a new assistant, Francesco Magnanelli, who used to play with him, at, uh, play for him at Sassuolo. Magnanelli has just graduated with his coaching badges. At Sassuolo, he played on the Deserbi. He's played on the Sarri before, before, even before he was at Sassuolo. So he's played on some good managers. And we saw in that first game against Udinese, Juventus doing things that I don't know Man City do you know in terms of just bringing their wing backs making them sort of inverted midfield players actually playing a coordinated high press which you know last year <laughs> they they sat back so deep they were practically on Chesney's goal line um, and they were that passive um, but in subsequent games they've kind of regressed to what we saw last year um, I think it's a team that still needs to do a lot more work in having patterns of play in midfield. Um, you know, I think Locatelli, under Dizerbi's instruction at Sassuolo, was a player who liked playing in a two in midfield and wasn't told to sit. He would kind of follow play forward and could have scored more goals, but was certainly more involved in 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 play going forward. Instead, he's just a six who sits and breaks up play in front of the defence for, for Allegri. Um, Rabiot is someone who carries the ball forward. So you're not getting any kind of intricate passing play from Juventus. And then you've got one of the kids, Miretti or Fagioli, playing um, in in midfield and being kind of an outlet between the lines. But they're still young. And, you know, I think unless Pogba was fit and available and not provisionally suspended because he's you know failed a doping test if if Pogba was there you see in the small flashes of play that he's had half hour cameos that he's by far the most creative midfield player on that team and they're crying out for that kind of creativity um, because Chiesa much as I love him his his only move is knock the ball past you and see if he can beat you in a foot race um, and so yeah, Allegri thinks he can score between 14 and 16 goals this season. We'll see. I mean, he's he's injured for for, for Italy's games, so that's that's always a concern with Chiesa. And it's been a fault, I think, of Juventus' recruitment over the last couple of years is that they've signed. You know, obviously Chiesa is much younger, but Chiesa did his ACL, Pogba did his ACL, Angel Di Maria is old, had the World Cup firmly in his mind when he joined the club, um, and. Yeah, that fragility or brittleness, I suppose, of some of their key difference makers means that they often look quite average, uh, which when actually you look at the names on the team sheet, you're like, actually, they've got loads of really talented footballers. Mm. You've just written a piece titled Juventus are not to be messed with, hell hath no fury like an old lady scorned. And if I'm reading that correctly, you're you're suggesting that, that Juventus are a team to keep an eye on in the title race this season. Yeah, uh, I think because they, like in 2012, they're not in Europe and so they can just con- concentrate on the league. Um, you know, I, I think 
you could already see against Udinese, they played at a, an intensity that they rarely played with played at uh, last season. Um, the last two performances after I wrote that article have been more of a regression away, uh, a regression towards what we saw last season, which on the one hand doesn't fill me with a lot of confidence, but on the other hand, as I mentioned, it was still a team that could go on long unbeaten runs and keep clean sheets. And often that's all you need to do. You just need that consistency mm. in order to be there or thereabouts in, uh, in Serie A. You know, it's, I think it's one of the, the reasons Lazio finished second last year was just because they kept more than 20 clean sheets. Um, so, uh, so that's always seen as a bit of a guarantee within an Allegri team and with Juventus. So for that reason, I think they will be, yeah, they will be closer um, than, than they have been in other years. And also it's Allegri's third year. So again, he doesn't have much in the way of excuses, even though they've lost a lot of experience over the summer in Bonucci, Cuadrado. Obviously, you know, Pogba's now not available, Di Maria, Paredes. Um, losing players like that is, yeah, and only bringing in Tim Weir as your one new face, um, is, it means that you're working with more or less, you're, you're working with less than you had last year, uh, essentially. But then you've got you've got less football to play. Hmm. We do need to draw this to a close, but I wonder if I could just ask one question about Atalanta because uh, they're always there and thereabouts, um, and we we always have Papa Gasparini um, <laughs> taking this <laughs> taking this team and, and making them perform way above where we expect them to be. This season's been quite fun because we've got the uh, these little rehab projects with <laughs> Scamacca and Charla de Catalara. <laughs> Um, who I wanted to mention just so I can pronounce his name because it's a very fun one to say. But what would you make of Atalanta this season? Do you think that they'll be in, a, in with an outside chance of a title challenge, or is it is it again just the case that with Atalanta it's anything in in the top four is just an incredible overperformance anyway? That that's what they'll be aiming for. Yeah, you're absolutely right because I mean this is a team that was is historically a yo-yo team, uh, not from between Champions League places and and Conference League places, but between City and City B. So. This six years of Gasparini, you know, I mean, he's the longest-serving uh, coach at a club in in Serie A. You know, I think the last couple of years he's had to rebuild the team, um, and so it's not it's not as explosive as it was when you had Zapata, Ilicic, Papu Gomez, and even Malinowski um, as, as as an alternative. Um, but uh, yeah, I think they're quite interesting. We talked about Sarri having to recalibrate his his ideas. Like I think um, last year, with some having someone with Hoyland's pace and even Lookman, mm. it meant that Atalanta were were kind of playing deeper. I think he was a little bit more prudent as well um, last season because uh, they leaked far too many goals. This was always even when they scored, when they were the top scorers in Serie A, the one thing. It, people held against them was they didn't keep enough clean sheets they conceded too many goals they were slightly better in that regard last year but I think if they're if they're just in the top four um, this season that would be a massive uh, achievement and I do think we're going to see them score more goals this this season uh, it's great to see De Ketelera, um score um, away at Sassuolo even it was <laughs> quite a jammy goal but he was due, he needed one needed, of those yeah. And then Skamaka, uh, on his first start against Monza, it's one of the best centre-forward performances I've seen in 2023. 
is just unbelievable. I mean, he I think he had a goal disallowed for offside, which would have been a perfect hat trick for him. And he was involved in two other goals that were disallowed. It was absolutely magnificent. So, so yeah, I'm I'm quite excited by them. They've yeah, you know, they've got some really good um, young Italian players. You know, Scalvini, who's so versatile. You know, can play as a at the heart of the center, as as a centre back through the middle or on the right. Can play midfield. Um, I think the other thing that has hindered Atalanta in the last eighteen months is. They struggled to replace Gosens. Gosens was such a big part of their their attack, and you know we saw the injury they picked up at the, towards the end of his time at Atalanta really impacted his time at Inter as well. But I think their wide players now are, are probably more up to Gasparini standard than they've been in the last uh, last eighteen months. So that means um, yeah, lots of chances I think for for Scamacca and Dicatelera, who's playing in a position which I think is. You know, kind of where Milan would have liked him to operate. Um, so, I think in some respects, in an alternative reality, Atalanta are the team Milan wanted to be. But they, you know, so it's always a case with them: can they, can they, can they make on now? Because they always, Atalanta have always been a team that finished the season really, really strongly. If they, if they, they improve their sort of form historic form between the kind of October December time then you know maybe they can be well not just a top four team but a team that gets us having that conversation that we've had a few times over the last few years that oh our Atalanta are a title contender yeah and whatever happens they will be fun to watch so yeah. I'm looking forward to that one but we're only four games into Serie A so I'm not going to ask you for predictions it sounds as though you're tipping into anyway but in terms of the title race do you expect it to be an open one this season on the basis of the teams that are in it yeah I mean last season the Champions League saved this idea that uh, Serie A was competitive because really it wasn't you know Napoli won the league by 16 points so um, but because they were the fourth different champion it, it, it maintained that luster um, I think I really do think Inter should should win it Um I don't know. I mean, we. I, th I feel we've been spoilt these last few years. As much as I've just denigrated what we saw last season, it was it was great because of the narrative around Napoli. But also, like the season before, people have quickly forgotten that. Yeah, a title race that goes down to the final day. Again, leagues can't ask for more than that. So, um, so yeah, I don't really know what to expect. I just know that those seven teams plus Fiorentina. Um, a, a, a pretty, oh, a, a pretty evenly matched. Um, so, so yeah, I don't know, John. <laughs> I have no idea. Well, James, it's been absolutely fantastic chatting to you. Obviously, if the listeners want to catch what you're putting out about Serie A, it's all on the Athletic, and you are tweeting at James Horncastle. Thank you so much for coming on today, and uh, yeah, enjoy the season. Pleasure. Thanks, John. Mm -hmm.